Hi, it's Chris Flanagan. Welcome to the Pediatric Emergencies Podcast. So today I'm going to be talking about setting up the ventilator. Um, I made a picture guide to how to set up the ventilator probably about six months or so ago. And I've had this on the website and it turned out this was one of my most read articles. So I thought I'd better put um, a little bit of audio to go with it. Um, so this is going to be the basics of uh, ventilating a child. It's not a discussion of advanced ventilatory techniques. So if that's what you're looking for, go ahead and switch off now. Um, like I said, it's going to be the basics. It's my approach, and this may be different to how others ventilate in the unit I work in and how others ventilate in other units. But if you learn this technique, you'll be able to ventilate children well. Um, I will need to do another later podcast on um, advanced ventilatory techniques, um, troubleshooting when things go wrong, um, and how to ventilate in special circumstances. But this is really only meant to be an introduction to ventilation, setting up the servo eye ventilator um, for somebody who's relatively new to it. Okay, so let's get started. So for somebody who's not ventilated a patient before, the ventilator can look like quite a scary machine. Lots of lights, lots of buttons, and you're not really too sure what to do with it. So I want to break things down a bit and look at what a ventilator actually does. And all it really is is a box that blows air into your patient. And when you look at it in that way, it's actually quite a simple machine. There's a few things you need to tell it to do, so it blows air into the patient the way you want it to. And the first thing you need to set is what gas you want it to blow into the patient. And you have a choice of room air, 21% oxygen, 200% oxygen, and anything in between. So that's your FiO2, your inspired concentration of oxygen that you can set on the ventilator. So what gas the ventilator blows into the patient. So what's the next thing you need to tell the ventilator? Um, How many times a minute to blow into the patient? And that's your respiratory rate. So you pick a number for respiratory rate on the ventilator. um, And that's generally determined by the patient's age. So as the patient gets older, the rate that you set will go down. And I'll cover what the normal ranges are a little bit later in this talk. Okay, so you've told the ventilator what gas you want to use and how often to blow a breath into the patient. But the ventilator also needs to know how long it should deliver that breath over and that's called the inspiratory time and again that varies with age we've said the respiratory rate goes down with age um, so if it goes down the amount of time you've got for a breath increases so your inspiratory time tends to also increase with age and as well as setting the time you want for inspiration you have to set the time you want for expiration and that's called the expiratory time and likewise that will increase with age as your time for the breath cycle also increases with age. So although I've mentioned both your inspiratory time and expiratory time tend to increase as your patients get older, the ratio of the inspiratory time to the expiratory time generally stays the same. So if you take a breath in and out now, so take a breath in and a breath out. And you'll notice that the the breath out takes much longer than it does to take the breath in. 
And the breath out normally takes at least double the time it takes to, ever to, to get a breath in. Um, and this is expressed as the ITE ratio, or the inspiratory to expiratory ratio. And normally your expiratory time is twice that of the inspiratory time. So that can be expressed as an ITE ratio of 1 to 2. So 1 for inspiratory, 2 for expiratory. So expiratory is twice as long as inspiration. And that would be the normal ITE ratio on the ventilator. So you're allowing twice as long for expiration as you have for inspiration. So like I said, although the inspiratory time and expiratory time will increase as the patient gets older, the ratio generally tends to stay the same, and that's one to two. So you've told the ventilator what gas you wanted to blow into the patient, how many times per minute, and how long to deliver the breath over with the inspiratory time, and how long not to ventilate and allow the patient to expire for the expiratory time. And you've set the ratio of inspiration to expiration with the ITE ratio. Um, a couple more things to set before you're finished. The next thing to set is the PEEP. And PEEP stands for peak end expiratory pressure. And that's a constant distending pressure that prevents the lungs from collapsing down in expiration and causing atelectasis. And the best way to think of PEEP is to think of you trying to blow a balloon up. So when you start to blow the balloon up, it's quite difficult um, to get the balloon started. You're using quite a lot of pressure to get that initial inflation. But once you've got a little bit of air in the balloon, then the balloon is quite easy to blow up the rest of the way until the balloon starts to become over distended and it gets more difficult again to blow it up. So wouldn't it be great if the balloon could be kept slightly inflated so you've already got overcome that little bit of difficulty from blowing it up? And that's what PEEP's job is in the lungs, is to prevent the lungs from fully collapsing down during expiration. They're kept open and then it means the ventilator has much less of a job to inflate them. It can use less pressure as the lungs are kept in that compliant stage. Okay, and the last thing then we need to tell the ventilator is how much gas to blow into the patient with each breath. And this is the tidal volume. And that's if you're using a volume mode of ventilation, you'll set a tidal volume for each breath. If you're using a pressure mode of ventilation, what you'll do is just select a peak pressure that you want the ventilator to blow into for the duration of the inspiratory time. And then whatever volume that delivers will depend on the compliance of the lungs. So I'll talk a little bit more about both of those a little bit later as we're going through the individual settings on the ventilator. So you can see it's not quite a, as complicated as you maybe would have thought at the start. It's just simply a box that blows air into your patient and how it does it depends on which of the settings you've selected. So I'm gonna go on now and talk a little bit about how to set up the servo eye ventilator. Um, for the first time and talk a little bit about some of the settings, the modes of ventilation and hopefully things will become a bit clearer as we go along. So what I do want to say before I go any further is if you're listening to this um, audio only version in the podcast um, it's probably better that you head over to the website paediatricemergencies.com and look at the video that I uploaded of this talk. Um, this will show you the graphs of the ventilator um, I've got lots of screenshots with things highlighted on the, the screen 
and it's going to make a lot more sense than just listening to the audio. So if you have the option of doing that, that's what I recommend you do. Um, so what you can see here, this is the, a screenshot of the ventilator in standby mode and we're going to talk about setting it up for a new patient. So the first thing you need to decide between is what mode of ventilation you want to use, um, either the adult or the infant mode. Um, what the manufacturers do say is the infant mode is suitable for children between 0.5 and 30 kilos and adult mode is suitable between 10 and 250 kilos. Um, but the minimum tidal volume that can be delivered in the adult mode is 100 mils. So really we're talking we want to be able to set a minimal tidal volume of 5 mils per kilo. Um, so that really limits the adult mode to 20 kilos and above. So to simplify this stage for you, if your child's less than 20 kilos, pick infant mode. If your child's more than 20 kilos, pick adult mode. And you can see on the screen here, the top left hand corner, um, whatever mode you've currently selected, you'll have an icon either for infant or adult um, in the top left hand corner. So if you do need to change that, you will need to go back to the standby screen. Um, Importantly as well, if you want to switch between invasive ventilation and non-invasive ventilation at any stage, you will also need to put the ventilator into standby. And this is something we quite often do. We're extubating a patient who's currently on invasive ventilation, and then we want to put them onto non-invasive ventilation immediately after extubation. So you can't make a, a switch without, where there's no interruption in the ventilation. You're going to have to turn the ventilator back into standby There'll be no ventilation for a period of time. We can then set up non-invasive ventilation and then press the, the button again, the power button to start the ventilation in non-invasive mode. So there's going to be a period where the ventilator won't be ventilating. So what you need to do is put the patient onto the bag while you put the ventilator into standby, change the sentence to non-invasive. You can then extubate the patient and put them onto non-invasive ventilation. So importantly, if you want to switch between adult and infant mode, invasive or non-invasive ventilation, you need to put the ventilator into standby by pressing the button in the bottom left hand corner um, to enable you to do this. So we're going to talk just about invasive ventilation in this talk. Um, I will cover non-invasive ventilation in a further podcast. Like I've mentioned, we're going to cover advanced ventilation, ventilation special circumstances, troubleshooting when things go wrong as well. So you can see in the top uh, left-hand corner beside the um, icon for adult or infant, you can see the currently selected mode that the ventilator has been set to. Um, and our ventilator defaults to pressure control. Not quite sure why, because we'd almost never use this mode. But what you need to do is click on the pressure control and that will then open up the menu of the possible modes the ventilator offers. So you can see there's nine possible modes that you can select here, um, but in practice there's really only three of these that we use in the unit, um, and they are SMV, PRVC, with pressure support, SMV, pressure control, with pressure support, and pressure support CPAP. So you can pretty much disregard all the other ones because they're not used in the unit. So I'm going to start off talking about um, SMV, PRVC with pressure support um, because this would be my preferred mode to start a patient on. Um, 
And to do so, I'm going to have to break it down a little bit and explain um, what each of those components actually means. To do this, I want to talk a little bit about pressure versus volume um, to make things clearer. So when we were selecting all the things we wanted our ventilator to do, um, there was two options of what you could do for the breath. You could either tell the ventilator to give a particular tidal volume or to deliver a particular pressure um, for the duration of the inspiratory time. Um, and you'll see from the modes, um, two of the initial quite primitive modes are pressure control and volume control. And although I said we don't use these, it's important that I explain how they work because it'll then make the more complex modes that we do use, um, it'll they'll make more sense. So starting with pressure control at the start, um, like I said, you, you set the ventilator up just like we've described. You pick your inspiratory time that you want the breath to be delivered over. And then what you need to do is select what peak pressure um, you want to be delivered for the duration of that inspiratory time. Um, the thing with this is the, the volume that is delivered um, will vary depending on how compliant the lungs are. If you've got very compliant lungs, you'll get a big um, tidal volume, whereas if the lungs aren't so compliant, setting the same pressure will mean there's less of a tidal volume and less ventilation. Um, what is important with the pressure control mode is that the pressure is constant over the duration of the inspiratory time. But flow is decelerating. So flow is faster at the start and slower towards the end of the breath. And again, I want you to try and take a breath in now. So take a breath in. And what you'll notice is that your breath in was faster at the start and slower towards the end. So one of the advantages of the pressure control mode of ventilation is that it matches your normal decelerating flow pattern, um, which makes it a more comfortable mode for a patient who's less well sedated. The other big advantage in that decelerating flow pattern is you tend to get the same tidal volume delivered um, with a much lower peak pressure than you would um, if you used a constant flow, as I'll, some of the other modes that I'll describe do use. So advantages of it are that it's more comfortable for a patient who's awake because it matches their flow pattern and it tends to deliver a tidal volume with a lower peak pressure. So if you're worried about the peak pressures, you're already on high peak pressures, um, there's less risk of barotrauma. Um, there is some problems with it in that your ventilation isn't guaranteed. Like I said, you set a, an arbitrary value for the peak pressure and the tidal volume that's delivered breath to breath varies depending on the current compliance of the lungs. So for example, say your patient was ventilating along nicely, everything's stable and they develop a pneumothorax. The compliance of the lungs is going to change, they're going to become less compliant, but your ventilator just continues to deliver the same pressure. So the tidal volume delivered with that pressure is going to go down and your ventilation is going to go down as well. The CO2 is going to go up. Um, likewise, if initially your patient has very, very stiff lungs, you put them on the ventilator and peak pressures of 21 are delivering, say, 6-7 mils per kilo of tidal volume. 
but over the next few hours the patient's lungs recruit up nicely and they become much more compliant. The pressure doesn't change, it still delivers 21 for peak pressure, but now that's generating 15-16 mils per kilo and your patient's at risk of volume trauma. So like I said, your ventilation isn't guaranteed, it goes up and down depending on the compliance of the lungs. So it's really important that you set tight alarm limits on the minute ventilation, um, which I'll cover um, slightly later on in this podcast. And the reason we tend not to use pressure control by itself, it doesn't tend to synchronise well um, with the patient like some of the other modes do. Um, If the patient does take breaths above the set respiratory rate, they are supported by the ventilator. Um, So volume control is very similar. Again, it isn't synchronised with the patient, um, although if the patient takes breaths above what's set in the ventilator, they are supported. Um, But instead of setting a peak pressure, what you do is you set a tidal volume that you want the ventilator to deliver. Um, And what the ventilator does this time is it delivers the volume at a constant flow. So flow is constant for the duration of the inspiratory time. And as we've mentioned before, this may not be as comfortable for patients. So if your patient is slightly awake on the ventilator, they they mightn't enjoy this mode of ventilation particularly well. If you think if you were trying to take a breath in and the ventilator was holding back on the flow, it wouldn't be particularly comfortable for you. And we've said the normal pattern is a fast breath at the start and slowing as time goes on. And this is really the opposite of pressure control. So with pressure control, you give a fixed pressure for the duration of the inspiratory time and the tidal volume varied depending on the compliance. In this mode, the tidal volume set is constant and whatever pressure it generates varies from breath to breath depending on the compliance of the lungs. But the big advantage of this mode is that the ventilation is guaranteed. So the ventilator will put the pressure up and down to deliver the set tidal volume at the set number of breaths per minute. So your minute ventilation is guaranteed. Um, And this is particularly useful if you've got patients who won't tolerate changes in CO2 particularly well. For example, your head injury patient. Um, The ventilation is going to be fairly similar. So the patient, if this patient develops a pneumothorax, um, what will happen is the ventilator will need to use more pressure to deliver the same tidal volume. Um, the alarm limits will, providing you've set them well, will start telling you that the ventilator is delivering a high pressure, but it will still give you the volume, so your ventilation tends to be guaranteed. Likewise, if we look at the second circumstance I described where the lung compliance improves quickly, what you'll notice is that the peak pressures will go down with time, but ventilation stays the same. So initially the patient who had the stiff lungs, who was needing 25 of peak pressure, what you'll notice is that number will go down. So they might now go down to 20 and down to 17. So you're needing 17 to deliver the same tidal volume that was needing 25 a minute ago. And for me, that's one of the nice things about a volume mode of ventilation. You can see the compliance by keeping a trend on whatever peak pressures needed and it gives you an idea of what's going on with the lungs whether they're getting better or worse. 
So like with uh, pressure control, you need to set tight um, alarm limits on the volumes the ventilator delivers. With a volume control mode, you need to set tight alarm limits on the pressures the ventilator delivers. Because like I've said, the, the pressure will just adjust to deliver the same tidal volume. And what you can find is that the, the pressures will be very high and your patient's at risk of barotrauma as the ventilator will uh, insist on delivering the same tidal volume regardless of what pressure it needs to if you haven't set the upper limit on pressure well. Okay, so to sum up volume control, the big advantage of it is the guaranteed ventilation. Um, the problem with it is that the constant flow pattern is slightly less comfortable for patients who are awake and also because the flow pattern is constant it tends to result in a higher peak pressure than if a decelerating flow pattern is used for example in pressure control so you will need slightly higher pressures than what you would in pressure control to deliver the same tidal volume. So you can see there's advantages and disadvantages um, with using pressure control versus volume control so wouldn't it be great if there was a mode that had all the advantages with none of the disadvantages of the, the two modes? And this really is Pressure Regulated Volume Control, RPRVC. So how does this mode work? Um, like the other two modes, um, Pressure Control and Volume Control, it is an unsynchronized mode. Um, the breaths are given depending on what respiratory rate you've set um, whenever that time of the breath cycle is up but if the patient does take additional breaths um, they are supported by the ventilator. Um, like in volume control you do set a tidal volume that you want delivered with each of the breaths but how the ventilator works is it looks at trying to deliver that volume with the lowest possible peak pressure it can and to do so it uses a decelerating waveform so like what's used in pressure control. And we've already mentioned that tends to give a lower peak pressure and also be more comfortable for the patient. And what the ventilator tends to do is it looks at the previous breaths, seeing what pressure it's needed to deliver the volume, and then adjusts that as time goes on. Um, so you're, you'll, what you'll see is that the volume tends to remain constant, but the pressure needing to deliver it um, varies from breath to breath. So this mode tends to have all the advantages of the previous one. You've got your um, set tidal volume, so guaranteed ventilation. You've got a decelerating waveform, um, which is more comfortable for the patient um, and also results in uh, lower peak pressures than you'll get with volume control. I suppose the only negative to say about this type of ventilation is if your patient is particularly active, um, the pressures can jump about quite a bit. Um, and that's because, like we said, the ventilator looks at the previous um, breaths to decide what peak pressure it needs to deliver the um, tidal volume for future breaths. So if in some of the breaths before your patient has been fighting the ventilator and suddenly using very high tidal volumes, your ventilation can be a little bit all over the place. So it's not particularly great if your patient is fighting the ventilator. So we've now discussed pressure control, volume control, and PRVC. Um, and you can see now that the mode I want to tell you about SMV, PRVC with pressure support, I've explained 
one third of that I've explained the PRVC bit so for the um, respiratory rate that you set your control breaths that are delivered are going to be of the PRVC type but they're not just PRVC they're SIMV combined with PRVC so to explain that fully I'm going to need to tell you a little bit about SMV so SMV stands for synchronized intermittent mandatory ventilation so what does that mean um, I've said to you in the pressure control the breaths are given say you've set a respiratory rate of 30 the breaths are given every two seconds um, regardless of what phase the patient is in their ventilatory cycle um, how pure um, SMV works is it tries to synchronize the breath with the patient so how it does that is your total breath cycle like I said if we've set a rate of 30 your breath cycle is two seconds so it allows you up to 90% of that breath cycle time for the patient to have their breath um, and if they don't take the breath in that 90% of the breath cycle time the ventilator then gives the mandatory breath but if in that period the patient um, takes a breath the ventilator then times that controlled breath um, with the patient's inspiratory effort so again it's synchronized with the patient but has the advantage that if the patient doesn't breathe at the desired rate it will give the breath so it's kind of a combined mode so if your patient wants to breathe uh, doesn't breathe at all they'll get um, full controlled breaths if the patient breathe, triggers all their breaths, they'll all be all the set rate will be um, synchronized with the patient. But for example, say your ventilator set at twenty breaths per minute, and your patient wants to breathe at forty per minute. In pure SMV, um, twenty of those breaths will be supported, and the other twenty won't get any support. So it supports up to the number of um, breaths that you've set on the ventilator. Your patient's guaranteed to get those number of breaths whether they trigger them or not. But if they take any breaths over and above it in pure SMV, they don't get any additional support with them. So what is SIMV PRVC? It's just a combination of SMV with the control breaths being of the PR. VC type. So the big advantage of combining the SMV with the PRVC is that it is synchronized with the patient's breaths so much more comfortable for the patient than if they were getting pure PRVC. Um, so the patient tends to be happier on the ventilator. Um, what you'll see is that some people who will bring the patient to the unit they're deeply sedated possibly paralyzed is they'll use a pure PRVC mode um, and what they'll then do is once the patient's more awake switch it over to SMV PRVC to synchronize the breaths with the patient. I would make an argument that you just use the SMV PRVC even if the patient is deeply sedated and paralyzed and the reason for that is if the patient doesn't make any respiratory effort they just get pure PRVC breaths but once the patient is awake enough and starts to synchronize with the ventilator, the ventilator will automatically start synchronizing the breaths with the patient 
without you having to come back and readjust the ventilator from the PRVC to the to the ventilator of SAMV PRVC where it allows the breaths, the controlled breaths, when the patient wants them. Okay, so hopefully the mode is SMV PRVC with pressure support is starting to make sense with you. So you should understand two-thirds of this mode now. You should understand the SMV PRVC bit of it. And now I want to go on and explain what the pressure support means. So like I said, when you've set um, pure SMV, the ventilator will support up to the number of breaths that you've set and do it best to synchronize those breaths with the patient. However, if the patient doesn't breathe, you'll still get those breaths guaranteed, even if the patient doesn't try and trigger any of them. Um, on the other hand, if your patient breathes above the set rate on pure SMV, any additional breaths that they take above the set rate don't receive any additional support. Um, and I don't think that's a particularly great way to ventilate a patient, and, and neither do the manufacturers of the ventilator because they don't offer pure SMV. Um, all their SMV modes are combined with pressure support. So the pressure support is a smaller breath that all those additional breaths um, above the set respiratory rate that the patient takes themselves receive a little bit of um, support. So you can look at the SMV PRVC as the big breath, the controlled breaths, and the smaller breaths as the pressure support breaths. So every breath the patient takes on this mode of ventilation gets some support. The number that you've set with the respiratory rate gets big breaths, but any breaths the patient take above that get a small amount of support um, in the pressure support breath. Um, and what you tend to do with the pressure support breath is you pick a pressure above PEEP that you want the patient to get. Um, the big difference with these breaths are that they don't have a guaranteed inspiratory time. So they tend to have less tidal volume and less support for the patient, but at least the patient gets some support with the breaths. Okay, so now I want to go on and talk about how you would set up the um, ventilator for SMV PRVC with pressure support. And like I said, this is the mode that I'm tend to set on most new patients coming to the unit you're deeply sedated and have a high ventilator requirement. So you can see from the screen here, the first thing you want to do is set the tidal volume. So as we've said, this is the volume the ventilator delivers with each breath. And you'll see figures quoted in the literature, you know, the normal tidal volume um, that's used in children is somewhere between five and 10 mils per kilo. Um, we're sort of worried that using the higher end of this will result in trauma to the patient's lungs. So most of us are tend to use lower tidal volume, somewhere between five and eight mils per kilo at a breath. So I, I would tend to start with seven mils per kilo. I think that's a reasonable starting point. So take the patient's weight in kilos, multiply it by seven, and set that as your tidal volume. And then you can make small adjustments to that, depending on what pressures and what the chest lift is um, with that. So the next thing you want to set is the ITE ratio. Um, on the ventilator, this defaults to one to two. Um, and like I said, uh, the inspiratory and expiratory time will increase as the patient gets older, but the ITE ratio generally stays the same of one to two. 
So I would recommend for most patients, don't adjust the, the IT ratio. Leave it at one to two. Um, there are certain patients, for example, asthmatics, who need a long time to expire, and we're maybe using an IT of one to three to one to five in those patients to prevent our trapping. Um, and sometimes in neonates, we'll lower the um, IT ratio and maybe use a one to one. Um, but even in neonates, I generally start with a one to two and only adjust that if I need to. So for most patients, leave the IT ratio as one to two. And I'll cover asthmatics in the, the second podcast and ventilation in special circumstances. Okay, so we've set the tidal volume. We've set the IT ratio. The next thing to do is set the inspiratory time. Um, and again, the inspiratory time varies with age. Um, because the respiratory rate comes down as you get older, your inspiratory time needs to lengthen. So generally in children under a year, the normal inspiratory time is about 0.6 to 0.8 seconds. From 1 to 5 years, it's 0.8 to 1 second. 5 to 12 years, 1 to 1.2 seconds. And greater than 12 years, 1.2 to 1.5 seconds. But what you probably notice that you can see from the screens here, um, there's nowhere to actually set the um, inspiratory time on the ventilator. There's no button that then you can turn to pick that number. Say you've got an age, you want to set it at 0.6. Um, so you need to set the inspiratory time by manipulating two other features on the ventilator. Um, and these are the IT ratio and the breath, the total breath cycle time. Um, so you can see what I said, we normally leave the IT as one to two. So what you need to do is select the breath cycle time button, which you can see here on highlighted on the screen, and adjust that until you've got the I time, um, which is selected now uh, in the top right-hand corner of the screen to the number that you want it to be. So just a couple of important points to make about the inspiratory time. So this is the time the desired tidal volume is delivered over. So if you set the inspiratory time too short, the ventilator is gonna to have to use much higher pressure to deliver that tidal volume over that shorter period of time. So it can be a cause of the pressures being high on the ventilator. Uh, and one of the things you can do to help resolve this is lengthen the inspiratory time so that the breath is given more slowly and over a longer time. Um, likewise, if you've set the inspiratory time too long for your patient, it limits the time for expiration, limits the respiratory rate, and puts the patient at risk of hypercapnia. Um, one of the places we will tend to use long inspiratory times are with patients with lung injury, ARDS, where we're using a high PEEP long inspiratory time, trying to keep the lungs open as best we can. But again, you'll get more than that in the next podcast on ventilation. So like I said, so the, you can't set the inspiratory time on the ventilator by itself. You're going to have to adjust the breath cycle time and the IT ratio. So for example, if you've set the IT ratio of 1 to 2 and you want uh, an I time of 1 second, you, you'll then obviously want um, an E time of 2 seconds with an IT ratio of 1 to 2. So you need to set the breath cycle time to 3 seconds to get the desired I time. Okay, so moving on, the next thing to set is the respiratory rate. 
So as we've said, this is the number of times the tidal volume that you have set will be delivered per minute. Uh, and this is what really controls your ventilation. Um, there is a couple of important points to make about this. Um, your breath cycle time will limit your respiratory rate. So for example, you see at the screen there, the breath cycle time is set to two seconds. So that's two seconds for each breath. Um, and you can see the current respiratory rate set there is 30. If you try to turn the respiratory rate up above 30, the ventilator won't let you do it because at the moment you've got 30 breaths at two seconds each, which is 60 seconds. So there's not enough time in the minute to have any more breaths. So the only way that you can turn the um, respiratory rate higher is to reduce the time for the breath cycle. And this is important because this is something people often do. They want their rate higher, so they reduce the breath cycle time. The problem is because your ITE ratio is staying at one to two, when you reduce the breath cycle time, your inspiratory time will change. So important, any time that you adjust the breath cycle time or the ITE ratio, look at the I time because it may have changed and you might not be happy with it. So what, what is a normal respiratory rate? What should you be starting with? Um, so for a child less than one year, um, I tend to dial up somewhere between 25 and 30 breaths per minute. One to five years, 20 to 25 breaths a minute. Five to 12 years, 15 to 20 breaths per minute. And greater than 12 years, around about 12 to 15 breaths per minute. And if you're somebody who's used to working in a neonatal unit, you'll probably look at the value I'm picking for a term neonate of 30 breaths per minute as being a little bit low. Um, but the patients generally ventilate very well on 30 breaths per minute. We tend to use slightly longer eye times. Um, and quite often I'll go out to district general hospitals to find a, a baby with um, respiratory failure hypercapnia being ventilated at 60 breaths per minute. Short eye times, not clearing CO2. Uh, and I'll get strange looks when I set 30 breaths per minute on the ventilator and give them decent eye times, decent time to expire, and the children just clear their CO2 much better. So like I say, there's in medicine, there's lots of different ways to do the same thing. Some are better, some are worse. So keep an open mind when it comes to, to ventilation. But if you're, like I say, if you're somebody coming from a neonatal unit, you may look at 30 breaths per minute in a paralysed neonate and wonder how they'll ventilate. But they ventilate very well on these settings. Okay, so the next thing to mention is the PEEP. We already talked a little bit about what the PEEP's job is. It's to keep the lungs open at the end of expiration, preventing atelectasis. So I generally start with a PEEP of six um, in a patient who's got normal lungs, not significant collapse or atelectasis, not needing a significant amount of oxygen. Um, if the patient isn't a significant amount of oxygen, there's significant collapse consolidation on the x-ray, um, I tend to use a slightly higher PEEP start, maybe with about eight, in an attempt to try and recruit those areas of the lungs. So you've got two options when you've got bits of the lungs collapsed to um, increase the oxygen to the patient. You can either increase your FiO2, all that does is put more oxygen into the bits of the lungs that are open, does nothing to fix the underlying problem, and that will eventually worsen as the bits of the lungs that are open continue to collapse. Or what you can try and do is try and re-recruit those bits of the lungs that are collapsed, use a slightly higher end expiratory pressure, constant distending pressure to slowly recruit those areas that are collapsed. And that's where PEEP comes in. It is primarily 
oxygenation. So if you're still struggling on that, I tend just to go up in the peep in steps of two. Um, likewise, if you're somebody coming from neonates, you're taught that peep is evil, it causes pneumothoraces. Um, it does if used inappropriately. Um, what you're trying to do is have the, the lungs optimally inflated. And to do that, you need to use whatever PEEP is the right amount of PEEP for those lungs. Not just because you've been taught some silly rule that high PEEP is dangerous. Um, if you need a high PEEP to hold those lungs open at a normal level of inflation, then that's what you need to do. You shouldn't be using a low PEEP and having lots of the, the lungs collapsed. Um, just because you're scared to turn it up. Likewise, if you've got normal lungs and you give the patient too much PEEP and overdistend them, then yes, you will have a risk of causing pneumothorax and that would be wrong. So you need to use the right amount of PEEP that's right for your patient and not be worried about the problems with using excessive PEEP. The other problem you can get if you do use excessive PEEP is it'll impair your, it increases your intrathoracic pressure um, which impairs venous return or preload to the heart. So there will be some cardiovascular effects you can get with that. Likewise, a high PEEP um, also impairs venous return from the brain. So we tend to use low levels of PEEP in patients with traumatic brain injury where we're trying to control intracranial pressure. Um, we tend not to reduce the PEEP by um, certainly below 5 to overcome work of resistance um, through the endotracheal tube. So to sum up PEEP, I'm normally starting at 6, um, maybe in a head injury patient, um, starting slightly lower at 4 or 5. Um, if my patient's in a significant amount of oxygen, there's significant collapse consolidation on the lungs, I'm turning it up, starting with maybe 8. Um, but if the oxygen's not coming down, I'm going to turn that PEEP up in steps of 2. And I'm not worried about using a high PEEP strategy because I'm not trying to overinflate the lungs with PEEP. All I'm trying to do is inflate the lungs to a normal level. And I'm going to use whatever PEEP is needed to do that. Okay, moving on to oxygen concentration. Um, this one's probably the most straightforward. Um, providing it's not contraindicated, I do tend to set the oxygen a little bit higher than what the patient's currently on um, when I'm transferring them onto the ventilator for the first time. And that's just to cover that initial few minutes while the patient's settling in on the ventilator and then bring it back down. Um, it just prevents any desaturation that the patient's likely to have over that time period. Um, the other important thing to mention about oxygen, we generally try to keep the FiO2 um, less than 60% um, in an attempt to avoid um, toxicity from high oxygen levels to the lungs. So if you're needing more oxygen than that, your preferred strategy is to try and re-recruit the lungs with more PEEP rather than just turning the oxygen up. But we'll cover that more in the next podcast. So um, moving on to the trigger, um, you can see that on the screen here. Um, as a default, the trigger is set as a flow trigger um, to a sensitivity of five. Um, and what I would recommend if you're setting the ventilator up for the first time, don't touch this. Um, you really should only be adjusting this if you're having trouble with your patient on the ventilator. Um, and I'll explain this a little bit more now. So as we've mentioned, um, this mode is a synchronised mode of ventilation. The ventilator tries to synchronise the breaths um, when, the, when it thinks the patient is trying to take a breath. 
So I've mentioned this is a flow trigger. Um, so how this works, the, the ventilator is constantly monitoring um, gas going out the inspiratory limb and coming back in the expiratory limb. And if the patient was to start and try and take a breath from this, it would notice some gas missing. There's some gas not coming back that it's sending out. So provided the amount of gas missing um, exceeds the threshold for the ventilator to trigger, um, the ventilator interprets this as the patient starting to take a breath, so it releases a breath to the patient, so that the breath is given at a time the patient is starting inspiration. And you'll see this with a little uh, purple mark on the flow against time graph, which I'll show you in a minute. So like I've said, the um, trigger sensitivity is normally set as a flow trigger to 5 by default on the ventilator. Um, there is occasions where you may, you may need to increase the sensitivity, so make it easier for the patient to take a breath. And you do this by turning the knob clockwise, and this increases the number on the, the flow trigger. Um, the highest it can go to is 10. Uh, for example, if you had a, a small patient who was particularly weak, who was trying to take some breaths, but the ventilator wasn't recognising that they were trying to take breaths, um, increasing this number would make it easier for the patient to trigger the ventilator. Um, and you could imagine if that patient's trying to trigger breaths and the ventilator's not giving them, um, the patient would be very unhappy on the ventilator. Um, the other circumstance you get is where the ventilator thinks the patient is trying to take breaths um, when they're not. Um, and you can determine this, it looks like the patient's breathing along at 80 or 100 on the ventilator, but when you take them off and put them on the bag, they're only breathing at 30 or 40. Um, so the ventilator is interpreting something um, is triggering the breath um, when the patient isn't. Um, and in this circumstance, you may want to reduce the sensitivity of the flow trigger by turning it down. Um, so the lowest you can turn this down to is one. The problem with turning that down lower is it increases your risk of the patient trying to take a breath and the ventilator not recognising it. So you, it's important you have the trigger set right. So what are those things that could make the, the ventilator think the patient's trying to trigger a breath? They can be um, water in the circuit, um, cardiac oscillations are the other thing that um, will do it. But by far the most common thing to do it is a leak around the endotracheal tube. I've already mentioned the, the ventilator by default uses a flow trigger and it interprets any gas that um, it sends out that doesn't come back as the patient taking it and then it will it will send a breath to the patient. Um, so there's a leak around your endotracheal tube. That's one reason why gas would come to the patient and not come back. Um, and in this circumstance, you may want to make the trigger um, slightly lower. Um, to try and compensate for that leak. Um, occasionally there's a there's a quite a large leak around the tube and um, it won't um, overcome this. So one of the things you may have to do in that circumstance is switch the patient from a flow trigger to a pressure trigger. And how you do this is you continue to, cur to turn the dial anti-clockwise um, down to zero or into one of the minus numbers. Um, so you can see there the ventilator has been turned to uh, a trigger of minus two and it now says the trigger is pressure rather than flow. So how, how will this fix uh, a leak causing auto triggering? 
Well, it switches from a flow trigger to a pressure trigger. Um, and with a pressure trigger, um, there's a valve that is closed in the circuit. So the patient has to generate the set pressure. At the moment, it's minus two. So it has to generate two less than peep to open the valve and uh, let the inspiratory breath come. So it's not reliant on flow anymore. So if there is a leak around the endotracheal tube, it won't cause auto-triggering. So this would probably be the most common thing. If you're not using cuff tubes, there's a, there's a leak around your tube. Um, the patient's auto-triggering. When you clearly take them off the ventilator, they're not breathing as fast as they look. Um, their CO2 is very low, which we know is at risk of cerebral ischemia, even though you've turned the respiratory rate down the ventilator. Um, because there's a pressure support mode on it, um, is overventilating the patient. So the best way to fix that is to turn the knob down to negative and switch from a flow trigger to a pressure trigger. Um, you can see there in this graph you've got the purple marks I was talking about um, on the ventilator. So you've got your three graphs there. The top one is um, pressure against time. The middle one is the one I'm talking about. It's flow against time. You've got inspiratory flow above the um, the x-axis and expiratory flow below the x-axis um, and then you've got tidal volume against uh, time along the bottom so you can see any of them that have this little purple um, line on the, the flow tells you the patient has triggered this breath and any of them that don't have the purple line it'll just be a, a green upstroke tell you that um, the ventilator has initiated the breath because the um, time to deliver the breath um, the minute the threshold has been reached. So you can see the next graph, um, we've turned the um, trigger to a pressure trigger. Um, and you can see now the little purple line comes up on the top graph, the pressure against time. Um, so you can see if there's a little purple line, it means that the um, patient has initiated that breath, regardless of whether it's one of the big breaths or the small breaths. Um, and if there's no purple line, it's just pure yellow, it means that the ventilator has delivered because the patient hasn't taken one in the set amount of time that it's allowed. So this next graph provides a nice summary of um, what the ventilator does um, and what the graphs um, display. So I see the top graph pressure against time, um, the middle graph flow against time and the bottom graph tidal volume against time and you can get a a nice picture of the difference between the two breaths here so this is a patient the respiratory rate set at 25 but you can see from the graph there they're currently breathing at 43 breaths per minute so 25 of the breaths are going to be the big smv prvc breaths and the other breaths the other 18 breaths are going to be pressure support breaths uh, and you can see a nice difference i've highlighted the the two breaths on the graph there um, you can see the big um, SMV PRVC breaths that have a guaranteed eye time and a bigger tidal volume. Whereas you look at the pressure support breaths, there's no um, guaranteed eye time. They're much shorter. Um, and also they generate a much lower tidal volume as well. So these are the support breaths. Okay, just a couple more things to, to point out on the graphs. The middle graph um, of flu against time is particularly useful if you think your patient's had a non-planned extubation and you're trying to work out is my endotracheal tube still in the trachea. Um, as I mentioned, time is along the um, the bottom 
along the x-axis and you just flow against the y-axis. Um, above the x-axis you've got inspiratory flow, below you've got expiratory flow. So uh, you can see there um, the graphs are fairly symmetrical, the flow going in mirrors fairly well the flow coming out. If your patient was to have an unplanned extubation all the flow would be above that horizontal axis. There would only be sorry, inspiratory flow. Um, all the expiratory flow would not be coming back the endotracheal tube, so you'd have no flow below the line. And obviously, you should be using entidal to help you work out if your tube's still in the trachea, but it's just another sign you can look for that helps you. Okay, so once you're happy that you have all the settings the way you want them, if you press the accept button to confirm your changes, um, importantly, if you leave the screen before hitting accept, um, all the changes you've made will be lost. Um, it'll then ask you to confirm that you haven't made any changes to the circuit that are going to affect its compliance. Um, and once you're happy, you've, you've clicked OK. Um, it'll take you back to the standby screen. Um, you've got two options to start the ventilator. You can either press the power button um, down the bottom left hand corner or press the start ventilation button on the touch screen. So when, once your patient's on the, the ventilator, the next thing to do is to set the alarms. So the alarm profile is in the top right hand corner. You can see it circled there on the screen. And this will bring you up into the alarm profile. So in this menu, you have to set an upper limit for the pressure. Um, you need to set an upper and lower limit for minute volume, respiratory rate and PEEP. So if your ventilator is already alarming, you'll see which of the parameters is causing the alarm because it'll have a bell symbol um, beside it so you can adjust those to start with. Probably the most important one that you need to adjust um, for this mode of ventilation is the upper limit for the pressure. Um, with SMV, PRVC and pressure support, um, the ventilator will deliver the tidal volume you have set provided it, it doesn't need to go above five below the upper pressure limit. Um, so you can see the upper pressure limit there defaults to 40. So the ventilator will deliver your tidal volume provided it doesn't need to deliver any more pressure than 35 centimeters of water. Um, if it does need more pressure than this, the ventilator will alarm to tell you that it hasn't been able to deliver all the tidal volume. So you can see what the ventilator does, it protects the lungs um, by not going um, more than five below the upper pressure limit. So it delivers the volume, providing it can do safely. And if it's getting into high pressures, then the volume is limited. So you can see 40 is far too much. You don't want to be using pressures of 35 before the ventilator tells you about it. So I would normally have this set um, somewhere between 30 and 35. So the ventilator will start telling me once the pressures go above 25 or 30. The other things you may want to set um, are the alarms for the minute volume. And it can be difficult enough to work out what your minute volume is. It's really your tidal volume multiplied by your respiratory rate. Um, but the best place to get this is actually look at the ventilator screen. And that's why I prefer to set the alarm limits up once the patient's on the ventilator. Um, you can see on the screen here, you've got 0.6 circled, and this is the minute volume. So you obviously want to set your um, alarm limits quite carefully around this. 
you can see at the moment um, it defaulted to um, between 2 and 5 so your 0.6 is already going to be alarming because it's lower than the 2 and it's quite far below the 2 so you're going to need to first of all set these limits so it um, stops the ventilator alarming but also if the minute ventilation drops significantly or increases significantly the ventilator will let you know okay so i do want to talk briefly about um, two other modes of ventilation you'll see used in the unit um, the next one is smv pressure control with pressure support um, this is basically the same as SMV PRVC with pressure support apart from you set a peak pressure just like you would in pressure control um, instead of a tidal volume in PRVC. So you can see on this screen um, how you set it up. Um, instead of um, having a tidal volume in the top left hand corner you set a pressure control above PEEP. Um, importantly that is the number above PEEP, it's not the peak pressure. So at the moment in the graph that's set to 15, we've got a PEEP of 6, so that will give a peak pressure of 21. So it's not a peak pressure of 15, this is the pressure control that you want above PEEP. Um, and that will pressure will be given for the duration of your inspiratory time with a decelerating waveform. The pressure support is exactly the same as you would find in SMV PRVC with pressure support um, and generally we're setting that to about 12 um, to start off with. For some reason the ventilator sets this to 20 um, which is far too high because if you're setting a peep of 5 or 6 that's going to give a peak pressure of 25 or 26. So generally I would set the pressure support to 12 regardless of whether I'm using SMV PRVC with pressure support or SMV pressure control pressure support. Um, one thing that's particularly um, important in this mode of ventilation is that sometimes you're trying to increase the pressure support and the ventilator won't let you do that. Um, that's because you're trying to turn the pressure support higher than pressure control. Um, and the idea of this is obviously your pressure control is meant to be your big breaths, your pressure support is meant to be your small breaths. So it doesn't make sense that you would be turning the pressure support above the pressure control. Um, so the ventilator does stop you doing this. Um, like I've mentioned, I generally start with a pressure um, support of about 12. And if I'm using a peep of 6, that gives me a, a peak pressure of 18 on my support breaths. Um, if you are using SMV PRVC with pressure support, you then want to also check um, what pressure your tidal volume breaths are giving you, because obviously you don't want that 18 to be higher than your tidal volume. So if your um, SMV PRVC breaths are only generating peak pressures of 15, then I would reduce the pressure support down um, in line to kind of meet the same sort of peak pressures. Okay, so I've already mentioned that I much prefer SMV PRVC with pressure support because it gives me the guaranteed ventilation also has a decelerating waveform. Um, so why would I use SMV pressure control pressure support? So for me, there's two scenarios I would uh, think about doing this. Um, the first would be um, small patients, generally less than two kilos, um, where the very small tidal volumes you set um, can make the ventilation a little bit inaccurate because you tend to ventilate the baby and the circuit um, 
actually sometimes these babies ventilate better on a pressure mode than a volume mode um, due to the small tidal volumes that you're setting. Um, the other circumstance is where there's a significant leak around the endotracheal tube, um, which can make using a volume mode of ventilation um, inaccurate. Okay, so the last mode I want to tell you about is um, pressure support CPAP. So this is exactly the same as the pressure support that you're using on either um, SMV PRVC with pressure support or SMV pressure control with pressure support. So all the breaths are supported um, with just a pressure support above PAPE. Um, there's no eye time on the breaths um, and it, it, they're only generated if the patient takes a breath. So you can see here in the screen, all you need to set is the pressure support above the PAPE. Um, and importantly, you have a, a backup mode of ventilation should the patient not trigger. Um, the ventilator will switch into a backup mode. Um, so with this, there's no guaranteed ventilation, um, there's no eye time, and it just supports the breaths that the patient takes. So often we'll wean other modes um, to pressure support CPAP to trial the patient prior to extubation. Um, and for patients who are very awake on the ventilator, they often find this quite a comfortable mode to be on. Okay, so the last thing I want to mention today is within the ventilator. Um, so quite often we'll put the patient onto SMV PRVC with pressure support, um, at whatever the set rate um, are recommended depending on the patient's age. Um, if the gas is winnable, um, what I would recommend you do is reduce the set rate down by five. And provided the patient is triggering the ventilator breathing above the rate, all you'll be doing by weighting the rate down by five is swapping five of the big SMV PRVC breaths with a guaranteed eye time for five smaller pressure support breaths. So although you're reducing the rate down by five, you're not taking all the ventilation down by five breaths, you're only swapping five big breaths for five small breaths. And you can see how the patient tolerates that and then take it down another five. Um, once you're down to five breaths per minute, your patient is actually mostly on pressure support CPAP um, because all the breaths they'll be taken above the five um, set breaths will actually be pressure support CPAP breaths. Um, so once your patient's stable on five breaths per minute, the next step is to switch to all pressure support CPAP breaths. And you can do that by switching the mode to pressure support CPAP. So you should just check and see what your pressure support set at on the SMV PRVC with pressure support and set the PAPE and the pressure support exactly the same. So people often think this is quite a big step switching over to pressure support CPAP. Um, but by winning the way I've mentioned, you're actually already mostly on pressure support CPAP and it's only the last five breaths that you're changing. Um, once you're on pressure support CPAP, I generally reduce the pressure support down in steps of two. Um, so once you've got to six over six, which is a peak pressure of 12, um, the, if the patient's generally on that and everything else is good, um, it's generally worth giving them uh, a trial of extubation. So that's my method of winning. Um, and I would strongly encourage you to do that right from the start. You don't need to wait to a certain point in the patient's intensive care admission to try and decide you're going to start weaning the patient. 
and actually it's one of my big frustrations is coming in to do the ward round and trying to decide whether a patient is ready for extubation only to find that they're fully ventilated with a rate of 20 or 25 um, so I have no idea if they're ready for extubation I need to spend the next number of hours trying to work that out whereas had that patient been weaned down and had been on CPAP with low pressures overnight I can make that decision very quickly and not have to waste the next number of hours weaning the patient down much more quickly than I would have otherwise. So please, please, please wean the ventilator. At every gas you look at, um, you should be weaning it unless there's a reason not to. Um, and while we're on gases, um, you don't need a gas to wean um, the ventilator at every step. Um, if your patient doesn't like what you've done with it, um, probably the most useful thing you'll see is the respiratory rate and the work of breathing go up. So in fact, actually, because the patient puts their work of breathing and rate of breathing up, the gas will be normal initially because you get respiratory distress before you get respiratory failure, just the same as you would if you didn't have the tube in. So you're again, you've also going to have end tidal. So I think it's reasonable to make a few turns down the ventilator providing your patient looks stable and everything's good um, and importantly provided your patient is breathing spontaneously so you're re-swapping big breaths for small breaths um, you can certainly wean a few steps before doing a blood gas. Um, the circumstance where you may want to do a gas um, before another wean is where your patient isn't breathing above the rate. Um, and in this circumstance, I, I wouldn't be turning the rate down in steps of five, because in this circumstance, you'll be swapping five big breaths for no breaths. So if your rate is set at 20 and you take it down to 15 and your patient doesn't breathe up above that, you've actually reduced your ventilation by 25%, which is very significant. Had your patient been breathing up, you're maybe only reducing the ventilation down by a couple of percent. So that would be the circumstance that you would need a gas um, before weaning. And obviously if your patient's not breathing, they wouldn't develop respiratory distress before respiratory failure. Um, so I hope that makes sense. Um, please wean the ventilator if you can. Um, the longer you leave the child on the ventilator, the more risk of complications, both lung and other complications. There are increased risk of um, lung injury, ventilator-associated pneumonia, and all the other complications that go with ICU, uh, critical care weakness, um, central line-related infection, clots around lines, ischemic limbs from arterial lines. So you really need to wean the patient um, as you can. The other thing I'm often told is that um, the patient's not breathing above the ventilator, so we can't wean it. And the reason for the patient doing that fits into two categories. Um, one, there's a, a good explanation as to why the patient isn't breathing up, be it that they have a cerebral injury, they're deeply sedated. Um, so there's a reason why the patient won't breathe up. Um, and the second reason is you're just ventilating the patient at a rate that's too high for them. So they're never going to trigger if you leave them at that rate. Um, or their CO2 is too low to stimulate them to breathe. So. I'm quite often told this and what I'll do is I'll come and reduce the ventilator down by 5 or 10 breaths um, the CO2 will go up briefly and suddenly the patient will start triggering the ventilator 
so this patient who spent uh, a day or so in the ventilator not being weaned because they're not breathing up, um, within a few minutes is suddenly triggering the ventilator and breathing, allowing them to be weaned further. So if you are going to do this, you can't just turn the ventilator down and go away. You need to stay with the patient, see what happens to their CO2, uh, and certainly uh, if after 5 or 10 minutes um, the patient isn't breathing up, you maybe need to look at other things, put the rate back up to where it is, and then look at other things to see can you adjust them to get the patient breathing. But you can't just turn the rate down and walk away. Okay, so I hope you find um, this introduction useful. Um, please get in touch with any um, questions or comments you have. Um, I will try and do a second part um, covering more of the troubleshooting, um, special circumstances uh, and more advanced techniques. Thanks for listening.